This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. One could argue that the original goal was we all had to sign up for this class called Guitar Ensemble and we needed to get an A. And we're still working on it. That's William Bill Kanengeiser, a founding member of the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. The ensemble was formed 40 years ago at the University of Southern California, and they're celebrating with a new release, and it highlights all the varied colors of the guitar. It's titled Opalescent, and that's what we're going to hear about this week on new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker. I'm talking with William Kanengeiser, a founding member of the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet. And Bill, I want to go way back to 1980 when the LAGQ was first formed at the University of Southern California under the guidance of Pepe Romero. What was the original goal when this quartet came together? When we first met, uh, we all came together because we were all studying at USC to to be with Pepe, who is, you know, incredible sort of magnet that drew some of the most talented players in the country. And it really started with the friendship I formed with Scott Tennant at one of Pepe's master classes, even before he arrived at USC in, in Houston. So I knew that I wanted to play with Scott, he wanted to play with me. And then Pepe, who was, of course, you know, a member of Los Romeros, you know, the, the most famous guitar quartet. And he said, you should have a quartet. And then, you know, John John joined the group and Anissa Angarola at that time, the other member. And we coached, you know, quite a bit with Pepe, but also I have to give a lot of props to Jim Smith, who was the other teacher, sort of the in the trenches teacher. And some of his early arrangements for us, you know, that he did for quartet were some of the most important for us. But we started out just as a bunch of students with no long-term goal of making this a career. And it was about two years later that we sort of be, went from being the USC guitar quartet to kind of, now we're semi-professional. We're going to be the Los Angeles guitar quartet. And that's why we're celebrating sort of our 40th anniversary now. Which is pretty exciting because three of the original four members are still with the quartet. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your newest member who also had a chance to study with Pepe in Spain? Yep. Matt Greif uh, joined the group about, well, we call him the the new guy. He's only been with us for 16 years. So he's kind of, you know, we're still breaking him in. Uh, but Matt was actually my student at USC uh, when he was studying um, there. And he, he did master classes with Pepe in Spain, as you mentioned. Matt also is an extremely accomplished jazz musician. He's re really into jazz. And about 16 years ago, when Andrew York, our, our dear friend and composer, decided to go off on his big solo career, Matt was just the perfect choice to, to come into the group for, for so many reasons. Uh, but maybe the most important was we were really good friends with him. And I, th I think that's one of the aspects of, of this group that, you know, we were kind of buddies before we were a group. And I almost like to think of it at this point that Scott and John and I are like three brothers 
with all of the, you know, the love and the uh, dysfunction that any, you know, family would have, you know, and Matt is like our, our nephew, you know, who's just like loves everybody. And Matt, Matt is just incredible guy to get along with. He's super solid, but his skill set as a player was so perfect for us. He, he had great experience with playing in guitar ensemble. He was a member of the Defia guitar trio before he was with us. As I mentioned, he's a very experienced jazz improviser. He knows country music. His his mother is actually a very famous country fiddle player named Jana Jay. Um, and even his sound uh, is very similar to Andy's. So I think it didn't change the the sonic uh, signature of the group very much. And it allowed us to, to continue going the direction we were going, which was, you know, exploring the fringes of musical style with within a classical chamber music context. And Matt's done some really beautiful arrangements for us, one of which is featured on the new recording. It was really, uh, it was kind of heartwarming to see that arrangement of Michael Hedge's aerial boundaries. I just hadn't realized he'd been gone for 25 years already. So to hear that piece of music brought to life again now by four guitarists, which of course Michael Hedges sounded like he was playing four guitars. Right. Talk to me a little bit about this arrangement and why it's so important to you to have it on this recording. Well, we're we're huge fans of Michael Hedges. I actually, about, about 10 years ago or so, I, I had figured out a way to play some of his solo pieces on my solo recitals. I, I got this special strings hooked up to my classical guitar that were steel so I could do the tapping and all that. So Michael Hedges, you know, sort of groundbreaking recording on Wyndham Hill called Aerial Boundaries. It just blew the socks off of everybody. You know, it changed fingerstyle guitar forever. And we all loved it. And then we actually paid tribute to him in our 2004 recording before Matt joined the group. We did a re record called Guitar Heroes. And there was a piece on there that was a, a, a composition in honor of Michael Hedges. But Matt always loved this particular tune and he arranged it and the, the funny thing is quite a bit of this arrangement is a straight cover of what Michael Hedges did and it's it sort of speaks to Hedges's you know amazing virtuosity and creativity that it takes four of us to do what he did on one guitar but Matt also did this sort of off the beaten track kind of this 12-8 section that was a sort of minimal uh, you know, turn around the corner. That, that I think really beautifully adds like Matt's voice to the piece and then it sort of seamlessly works its way back to uh, the original Hedges track and um, this idea of this piece also really fit the, the idea of this record reflecting somehow light and the sky and you know I don't know what aerial boundaries means but it has a sort of vastness to it doesn't it the title of your new recording is opalescent it's your 14th commercial release and you're dedicating it to the memory of Australian composer Philip Houghton why are you dedicating it to him we were lucky enough to meet Phil when we played played in Australia, and he was an amazing person. He's very well 
regarded composer for guitar specifically. He was a wonderfully eccentric guy. And one of the things that he's most famous for in the guitar world, he wrote this suite for four guitars called Opals. And it attempts to portray the sort of glints and, and reflections that you see when you rotate the Australian national stone, the opal. And he was a synesthete and in, in that he, when he heard specific musical tones, he saw very specific colors. And so in the score to this piece, there are, you know, very specific references. Oh, this is, you know, Bert Ember. This is a flash of yellow, you know, glint of silver, you know. And, and when we met Phil, it was, it was so great. We were actually sort of in the shadow of the Sydney Opera House where we met him. And there's a photo of us with, with him on the, uh, in the liner notes of the project. He brought the actual opal that inspired the piece and he's holding it. He passed away about three years ago and uh, we had started playing opals and we thought we, you know, we got to record this, uh, this beautiful piece that we love. And it sort of started this whole idea of, of, well, what other pieces really can reflect this intersection between light and sound, between, you know, the colors of the guitar and the colors you would see in your mind. And we, we did another piece by Phil Houghton that's a very interesting minimal piece, but all, all the works in some way have to do with this idea of combining sound and light. It's interesting to me that you're celebrating your 40th anniversary, and I'm, I'm curious, I know you have this theme for the recording, but it seems almost like you would be looking at, and maybe this is what you've done, looking at all these influences that have inspired you over 40 years. Is that kind of the approach you've been taking with this? You know, I don't know if we were so calculated about it. We actually recorded this, most of the music for this, uh, two and a half years ago. It was pre-pandemic. We didn't think it would take this long to come out. <laughs> but, you know, as in everything, you know, supply chain <laughs> problems, you know. Uh, but in a way, I think it's sort of perfect that it's coming out right now, now that we're sort of starting cautiously to emerge from our cocoon, that this this recording that we hope is sort of uplifting and, and offers some solace, etc., that it's coming out now. In our recitals, we, we definitely have been turning backwards and looking at our legacy. And I would say one of the really important performances we were able to do during the pandemic was last summer, we were part of the Guitar Foundation of America uh, annual convention. And even though the whole convention was taken offline, it was, was, was you know, virtual, we got to do a live performance in near Pasadena, California, because we were getting inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, the, the GFA Hall of Fame. And Pepe Romero was there to present the award to us. And it, it, we actually invited Andrew York and Anissa Angarola, the two former members of the quartet. So he, he Pepe said, we are giving it to the LA Guitar Sextet. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was really a beautiful thing to kind of tie the whole history of the quartet together. And in that program, we did pieces that we just had learned. And then some of our 
first pieces that we ever played. You know, some of the ones that uh, like Manuel de Falla from from El Amor Brujo and, and things like that. So this idea of looking forward with this recording with new material, but also kind of celebrating our past, our legacy and all the different things we've covered. That's it's something else we're we're definitely front and center for us. I want to talk about more of the pieces, but I do have a question, an observation that I made in that this recording features all men. And I know that kind of in the world of perhaps in the world of classical guitar, maybe it is more male dominated. But I was curious if in as you're looking ahead, perhaps, um, or unless you've already done this and I have not found it. Um, is there an opportunity to bring more women composers in or um, diverse composers into your repertoire? Is that something you're thinking about? Absolutely. And in fact, one thing I could point to is just before the pandemic, the quartet was honored to to do a recording with the Conspirari Choir conducted by Craig Hella Johnson. And we did this amazing piece by Nico Muli with with 12 guitars and chorus, but we also did a, a, a wonderful piece with just us and Conspirari by uh, Rina Ishmael. And she's a, a beautiful composer and she she draws quite a bit on her uh, Southeast Indian heritage in that there's like Kowali kind of singing. It's fantastic. And we've done quite a few pieces, you know, by, by female and by composers over the years what we're really hoping to do very soon is to start a collaboration with uh, Clarice Assad. We, we've known Clarice for ages because we're we're best best friends with her father Sergio Assad, and in fact, the Assad brothers duo were really instrumental in getting our career going way back when. Like they, Odair's wife was our first record producer and European manager, actually, uh, and we've premiered a number of works by Sergio over the years. And uh, Scott and I performed the duo concerto by Clarice this past summer. So, you know, we're that she's one of a number of, of composers that we really want to start to collaborate with and, you know, and broaden this whole idea. I, I've also embarked on a solo commissioning project. I started about five years ago called the, the Diaspora Project. And I, I commissioned uh, a wonderful composer from Iran named Golfam Khayyam. Uh, she wrote a piece based on traditional Persian music. And I also commissioned uh, a composer from Philadelphia named Andrea Clearfield. Uh, I don't know if you know her music. Uh, she's fantastic. And, and she's a scholar in Tibetan works. And she wrote a piece based on Tibetan court music for solo guitar. So I, I've been very involved in, in this idea as well, you know, on my solo side. Wonderful. I'm so glad I asked you that because I was looking through the repertoire, um, your discography, and I thought, I must be missing something. Um, also, Singing Guitar was nominated for a Grammy. I we just missed out. Okay. We just missed out. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's a little hard to compete with with Dudamel, the L.A. Phil, and the L.A. Master Chorale. They, they, they won in the category of Best Choral uh, Performance. But it was, it was such an honor for us to be nominated, and I, I was really happy that the singing guitar got some extra exposure through that because it's a really beautiful uh, project. And even even some of the works that weren't written by female composers, the, the through line of that whole project is the woman's voice because Nico Muley's piece, How Little We Are, 
The libretto is based on diary entries by uh, pioneer women. And uh, Kyle Smith's piece, Dawn's Early Light, is based on the writings of a Native American woman named Sarah Winnemucca. So the, the woman's voice is through that whole, that whole project. Yeah, I I had the privilege of talking with Craig Halla Johnson about that when it first came out, and what a oh, beautiful, great. beautiful recording. He's amazing. To work with him was such a highlight for us. And he's he's, he's he speaking of light. When I speak with him, or any time I've met him, he really is filled with light. I mean, oh, yeah. that is that's the word that comes to mind. Your new recording, Opalescence, opens. No, actually, I'm sorry, Opalescent. You know what? It's funny. I'm sorry to interrupt. We debated whether should it be Opalescence. Or opalescent, and there's a teeth whitening product called opalescence, <laughs> and we didn't want to have a copyright infringement. But I, I think it's, I think I like opalescent. I, I, I prefer it. I would definitely agree with you there. Bill, you open this recording with a piece by Andrew York. And it's interesting to me that you started the recording with his piece. Was there significance in that? It's called Hidden Realm of Light. You know, it's so funny because in working with the producer, Steve Rodby, and talking with the guys, you know, we we always agonize over the the order of of the pieces on a on a record, you know, because you want it to have this certain flow, you want one thing to go, you want it to have contrast and all that stuff. And at one point we're like, does this even matter anymore? Because do people even buy records? Do people just like download individual tracks? Does it matter? You know, but when we thought about it, we thought this is like the perfect tune to open with. It, there's just something that's really welcoming. It just sort of unfolds and you're in the groove and it's, it's not too long, <laughs> you know, and it's, it just seemed like a perfect kind of curtain raiser to set the mood, set the tone for what's to follow. Um, and uh, it wasn't deliberate, uh, but it, it's nice for us to also pay tribute to Andy, our dear friend, you know, and, and we actually recorded that piece many years ago with Andy. So it's the second recording of it, but you know, we just, we just love it so much and it fit the mood of the record so well that it just seemed like the perfect opening track. There's a piece by Frederick Hand that was inspired by Renaissance and Baroque choral music, and it's titled Chorale. Can you tell me a little bit more about that piece and how it turns your quartet into a choir? Yeah, well, I think Fred Hand is is one of the most beautiful writers right now for for guitar ensemble. I, we've known Fred for years and years. He's a you know very well known player. Uh, and and especially someone who can merge jazz, classical, and and Baroque Renaissance styles together. It's it's a piece that's very lyrical, but it has this sort of jazz undertone to it. But it's it's unusual for us to have each person just playing a single line, you know, like as if we were singing one particular line or, or pitch, um, and moving freely in time together. And 
it's something that choruses do all the time, you know, and they can breathe together, they can move together. It's probably the hardest thing to do with four guitars because playing fast metronomic music is technically challenging, but it's musically not that difficult to align. But to, to be rubato together uh, is challenging because once you pluck a note on the guitar string, you cannot take it back. You can't sneak in like a, a singer or, or a, with a bow. Um, and so you, we almost have to be telepathically connected <laughs> to be together when we do that, you know, and, and have a sense of how the whole group is moving organically between phrases. And it's something John Dearman from the quartet likes to say quite a bit. He said, you know, it, it took us half our career to figure out how to play together and the other half to figure out how, how to not play together, <laughs> but to be together. You know, it's, you know to, to be able to move freely in, in a rubato way, like a solo pianist, let's say, um, that requires years, you know, and, and a lot of, of sort of telepathy. That's interesting to even use the word rubato because I think of that with relation to Chopin and how that basically gives you the freedom to play with the tempo. Right. And so if you're all playing with the tempo, yeah, what? That's right. <laughs> that would be interesting to yeah. hear what the results would be. There is a piece on here that was commissioned by the LAGQ and the Boston Classical Guitar Society in 2017. It's by Robert Beezer. It's called Chaconne. What was the goal with this commission? Well, we've we've known about Robert Beezer for years. Well, first of all, Robert Beezer is the only non-guitarist represented among all the composers. And he's, he's a big-time guy in, in the composition field. He's very respected. He's done commissions for major orchestras. You know, he, he teaches at Juilliard, but he has a very strong guitar connection. He's really good friends with Elliot Fisk. And he wrote a piece years ago for Elliot with a flute player. And it's a piece called Mountain Songs. And it's still, I think, the great flute and guitar piece. It's just fantastic. And it's based on, you know, different kinds of Appalachian folk tunes. And everybody should know that piece. It's just fantastic. Um, and kind of out of the blue, we were contacted by the Boston Guitar Society um, that there was this idea that it was like a co-commission because they had a guitar orchestra and they wanted to commission uh, Bob. Bob actually lives in Boston. And then he thought, if I can write a version for orchestra and then I actually helped him adapt it for four guitars that it was kind of worked both ways. And this this piece is really an unusual piece for us and I think gorgeous. I, I always said, you know, to Bob, you know, boy, if you name a piece Chacon, you know, you, you're gonna have to worry about Mr. Bach staring over your shoulder, like wondering what you're doing, you know. But the thing that's really interesting about the piece is, you know, a Chacon, of course, has a kind of recurring harmonic pattern uh, that you know, allows you to sort of ground yourself in where you are in that pattern, no matter what happens in following. And he uses it as a sort of variations form. And he takes this in so many different stylistic directions. Like there's, there's some that sound very Baroque. You know, with a kind of over-dotted French overture kind of thing. Thank you. 
There's some that sound sort of minimal and, and free. There's some that are very angular and aggressive. And near the end, there's one that's really kind of like a, like a Cuban salsa piece or something. still know where you are in the harmonic pattern, kind of no matter what's going on. But there's one particular variation that he gave the title Shards of Light. That was actually the working title of the record at one point. We, we were going to call it Shards of Light, and then we decided to call it Opalescent. But the idea of a shard of light was a kind of through line for us as well, for this, this whole project, you know, like little glints. That's interesting, though, because that's almost completely the opposite. When I think of a shard, I think of something sharp. Right, right. And, and this is something that has softer edges. Exactly. And so it worked really beautifully, especially, quite frankly, out of the pandemic. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, th that, that was... Uh, something the producer brought up. He said, are you sure you want shard? Because it sounds like a piece of glass that's going to cut me. And, and I was like, I hadn't thought of that, you know. And I think the idea of something that's opalescent, which it's like the light is emanating from the inside. And it's a, it's a sort of glow, even though it does have little pontillistic points of, of glimmer. It's a little more welcoming, isn't it? is a noted Bach scholar on this recording, Tillman Hopstock, and he created a suite, and it's called Suite Transcendent. He wrote it for the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet in 2015, and it's made up of five different pieces based on impressionistic paintings, which, of yes. course, let's talk about the soft edges right there. I the know, exactly. I love it. <laughs> exactly. Well, first of all, Tillman Hopstock, in, in the guitar world, he is an absolute legend, as an incredible virtuoso, like mind-blowing virtuoso, but also literally wrote the book on Bach's music as adapted for guitar. He's a, just a deep scholar um, in that field. But he also has created quite a profession as a composer, but here's, here's how it worked. Tillman released an album of newly discovered works for solo guitar by this a completely unknown composer named Alan Wilcox, who was essentially a contemporary of Debussy and Ravel. And here's an entire album of these etudes for solo guitar that are in the Impressionist style, brilliantly written, beautiful. And people were going, how come we've never heard of this person, Alan Wilcox? And he published these, and he subsequently discovered a whole set of preludes and, and, uh, and other pieces. And when you got the published music, you saw a complete biography of Alan Wilcox, like with photos of him at his school and, you know, his, you know, all of these things. And come to find out, Alan Wilcox was completely a figment of Tillman's imagination. He completely made him up out of whole cloth. And he actually got a little bit of uh, 
you know, some people sniped at him. It's like, why are you doing this? But this idea of a nom de plume uh, is there's a lot of uh, precedence for this in music. And his point was, if I wrote it as Tillman, I couldn't write this piece. But if I say I'm I am Alan Wilcox, I I lived in this time, I can channel this spirit. And so he was able to really create this sense of impressionist music. And when we heard some of his solo pieces, I remember talking to Tillman and saying, boy, it would be great if you could discover some Alan Wilcox pieces for four guitars. And so, so that's what happened. He finally has, has fessed up and, and admitted that, it's, that there's no such person as Alan Wilcox. But these pieces are, they're little miniature gems and with very evocative titles. This is one, The Grand Cathedral. It almost reminds me a bit of the Debussy, La Cathédrale Anglutée. Um, there's this, this one they called A Breath of Wind. You know, you can sort of have a, a, an image in your mind of what's, what's happening. And one particular movement, I, I believe it's the, the, the Gate of Heaven, but it's, it's, in, it's in French. And it's all in harmonics on, on the guitar. Sort of spread across the group, and it, it makes us sound almost like a glockenspiel or something. It's very unusual and actually very challenging. I like to think that the like Impressionist painting, you know, when you stand far enough away from an Impressionist painting, all the details are there in perfect clarity. And the closer you get to it, the less and less discernible it is. When you get right up against it, it just looks like smudges of, of paint. It's, and it's such an amazing, you know, effect that, that how our brain can perceive these patterns and, and make reality out of them. And I, th I think that's kind of how music works as well. If you get so myopic about just listening to the, the small details, you almost can't sense the scale of it and the emotion of it. Bill, your daughter created the artwork for your new recording, Opalescent. And I'm curious, what does that feel like for you to have your daughter involved in this project because anybody else could have created the artwork and it could right. be beautiful, but to have this kind of more of a family affair, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, you know, obviously I'm a little proud and I, I, I told the guys, I, you know, it could be embarrassing, right? Like if, if they didn't like what she did, <laughs> you know, then that would be awkward. Uh, we're lucky that she's a talented artist and they like her and she did a beautiful job. My, my daughter, Camille and her, her, her boyfriend slash business partner are virtual reality game designers, and uh, she studied in the animation department at USC, where you know where I teach. And so they're kind of experts in d designing three D modeling. And so we were talking about about this project, and I was like, God, it would be so great to have like an an opal that you know you could rotate and you could have the the, the light gleaming off of it and. Even though she's incredibly busy with the other projects she's working on, she you know made time to develop these three opals. Uh, so the 
the cover has this white opal, there's a blue opal, and then this the black opal that we have on our little trailer that maybe you can share with people. And um, it was a lot of fun working with her because we, you know, I sat next to her at the computer terminal and it's like, well, can we get a little more yellow here and glint and let's move the the light? You know, it's all mystery to me because it, it, it exists, but it doesn't exist. It's there, but it's not. But it's actually not the first time that I that she's been involved with an LAGQ project. M- many years ago, we did a, a project with John Cleese. I wrote a, a theater script based on Don Quixote, an adaptation of Don Quixote, a three-act play. Uh, and I arranged music from the Spanish Renaissance. And we premiered it with John Cleese, and then we subsequently toured it with Phil Proctor, if anybody knows Phil Proctor from the Fire Sign Theater. But of them. Um, and I asked Camille to design the slideshow that when we went from chapter to chapter. And she was only 16 when she did that, and she did a beautiful job. So I knew that she could, you know, could handle this. So um, it's, it's very special. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the bucket list yet for LAGQ, especially now that Pat Metheny finally wrote his piece for you. And I talked with him about that, uh, I guess it was about a year ago already. And he was kind of blown away almost without words when he received the reaction that you and the quartet gave his piece. Can you just talk a little bit about Road to the Sun and what that meant for you to have him write that piece for you? Pat Metheny was blown away about what we did (laughs) or what we said. Wow. (laughs) He said, well, here's what he said. And you can go back and listen to it on New Classical Tracks because he said, I asked him what that meant to him. And he said that it was an incredible compliment. He literally said, wow. Wow. Well, that's all that's all. That's all I can say. I mean, you know, it was like this, you know, pinch me, I'm, I must be dreaming moment when, you know, we, we played at a festival in Montana that, that Pat was also playing at. And he came backstage and he was like, while you were playing, I was thinking about what I could write for you guys. And, and maybe I'll write something for you guys. And we're like, oh, my God, you know, and sure enough, you know, it took a while. But but he wrote this. It was supposed to be about a 12-minute piece, and it ended up being a 26-minute, you know, six-movement epic symphonic thing. And and we're still performing it. We're going to perform it tonight in our concert near Nashville. Um, such a beautiful and deep and varied piece. And to get to work with, you know, one of our guitar heroes, and he was so dedicated to it and the thing I kind of always have to tell people when we got the score the thing that blew me away was it wasn't written guitar one two three four it was Bill Scott Matt John like he he wrote each part for us he knew exactly what we do best and where we were in the group and you know so for us to get you know to get a piece from him anyway and then to have him you know be able to work with him you know coaching and then have him be there at the recording session you know it is on the bucket list and i i will add also that when we did that recording session his his constant co-producer is a guy named steve rodby who was the bass player from the pat metheny group for like 25 years we hired steve rodby to produce this record so the sound on this record and the production level, it's, you know, it, it's, I think it's, I know I, everybody always says this, but I, I think it's the best sounding record we've ever put out. I think it's just really beautiful. And, and Steve was so great to work with. Maybe the most, uh, 
personally uh, committed producer to any project we've ever had. It's, he, he just really gave it his all. His all. So we're, just, we're so honored that you know, we, we got enfolded into that whole world. It's interesting because as I listen to you and your enthusiasm 40 years into this, yeah, that's pretty exciting to hear you still um, so enthusiastic about the work that you do and so many other things that I know you, other irons you have in the fire. So my final question is, after 40 years, what have you discovered about yourself that maybe has surprised you? I think, like many people, the pandemic taught us something really important which is the importance of gratitude and the importance of not taking for granted things that can quickly disappear. And, you know, I I like to quote Joni Mitchell on that, you know, you know, don't it always seem to go, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And, you know, the idea of, oh yeah, I'm going to go play a concert and, you know, you know, and then suddenly, no, you can't, you can't play. I, I had this experience on, on March 6, 2020, I was 24 hours from premiering a, a new project with the Alexander String Quartet that I'd worked on for a year called British Invasion, where with guitar and string quartet, we were playing Led Zeppelin, Sting, Beatles, and you know all this other stuff. And we had done a, a, a run-through concert, and we got a text saying, oh, the mayor just closed the Herbst Theater. And, and we were like, what do you mean? the concert's canceled. And then five days later, every concert on the planet was canceled. And then it was, you know, essentially a year and a half or two years before we could perform again. And uh, the feeling of, you know, still then trying to find a creative outlet and being, you know, through Zoom, through broadcast concerts from your house, you know, playing for empty theaters that are being, you know, live streamed but really still yearning for that direct connection with a live audience. You know, that to, to me, that was really something that I missed and that I'm really excited to have back. And it, it helped to really reframe my whole approach to music making, that it, ultimately it's about communication. It's about, you know, telling a story, sharing with people, having it be a, a collaborative experience. And that's, that's what I learned. a founding member of the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet, talking about their new recording, which celebrates their 40th anniversary. It's titled Opalescent. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer of New Classical Tracks. I'm Julia Mocker, and this is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media.